Welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. All right. Welcome, welcome. I am, of course, your host, Joe Boris, and I am here with Duncan. Duncan, you and I have met before. I don't want to kind of take too much time introducing you because you're much better uh, at introducing yourself, I think, than I will be. But you and I first met in a podcast recording that we did with Fuel Man, with the, the gentleman from Fleet Corps. And I That's was right. so excited and so interested in what you were uh, doing, what you were talking about, that I, I've just been really eager for the last several months to get you back on. So thank you so much for being here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the company that you're here with? Yeah, Joe, thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. So I've, I've had a career in renewable energy and distributed energy. And then four years ago, I moved into electrification of transportation, wrote the business plan and launched Highland. Uh, you know, I think I've always been very interested in all things sort of around the environmental movement, around energy, how we create it, how we use it. And, and then you know, I, I see transportation electrification as the future. I think of it as an upgrade. The tech's better. It's more expensive to buy the equipment today, but but that that doesn't that doesn't accurately frame up the total cost picture. So, Highland Highland Electric Fleets. I wrote the business plan. I act as the CEO, and I said on the board, we are a company that exists to basically help municipalities and governments on their journey to electrify their fleets. Those could be school bus fleets, garbage truck fleets, street sweepers. You know, there's a, a whole product roadmap from the major manufacturers of battery electric products that range from, you know, electric school buses from Thomas and Bluebird and IC to electric garbage trucks. You know, the, the products are, are really really high quality products. Right. And, and if I understand correctly, what Highland Fleets does to kind of kind of put a bow on this, what you guys are doing is you're creating lease programs, maintenance programs, essentially ownership programs that enable these municipalities to kind of wrap up everything into a single payment that's easier to budget than the the kind of ongoing maintenance and fuel and repair and purchase contracts. And by doing this, you're actually making it more attractive for them to put in that upfront cost for the electrified vehicle. Is that kind of where we're at? Nailed it. Absolutely. Yeah. We take on the obligation of providing the equipment and paying for the equipment and the obligations of fueling that equipment every night and sometimes in the middle of the day. And then we provide a warranty plan that basically says we'll pay for all parts and labor. And so, uh, so, uh, so you yeah. guys are taking care of the charging as well. So what, what does that mean? Like, let's say I'm a, you know, I'm a school board and I'm looking at getting an electric school bus. I don't know how I'm going to handle charging. I don't know how I'm going to handle maintenance. So you guys are going to do that for me. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you're, if you've got a fleet of diesel buses today, you probably have a fuel distributor, someone who drops off fuel and puts it in a big tank and then your drivers fill up. We are a fuel distributor for battery electric vehicles, and we have to install some of our own equipment at the municipal sites 
so that fueling is convenient. We train the drivers on how to plug the charging station in when they bring the bus back for the night. Then we deal with every aspect of making sure the charging equipment works to buying the power from the utility. The, the customer gets a fully fueled vehicle every day. Wow. So, I mean, like, I, I don't know where to, really what to say to that because it, it kind of sounds like, oh, well, why wouldn't you do this? Right. Like it's a little bit kind of too good to be true. So it, it, let's say right now I I'm, you know, and you made a, a really good point with the electric garbage trucks, right? Obviously Mac is making those Volvo's making those. So there's a couple of those that are out there. Yes. And these municipal fleets that, that pick those up and buy these, you know, are, are these companies that are looking to replace their diesel trucks now, five years from now, how does that sort of cycle work? Because it, it always seems to me like, you know, the, the school district has like 18 ratty old buses. And then one year they just have all new buses. They never yeah. like replace them one at a time, you know? So how did, how does that work? How does that kind of planning resolve itself and how do you support that and work with them on that? Sure. Yeah. So every, every fleet has its own sort of local dynamics around how they keep that fleet uh, operating and on the road. And there's definitely examples of 18 old, rat, old ratty buses and one or two brand new ones. But for the most part, there's more of an annual cadence of buying some new vehicles, scrapping the oldest vehicles that are ready for the scrapyard. And so, you know, it's very much a consultative roll up the sleeves planning exercise with the communities that we work for to effectively create a fleet transition plan. And, you know, if there's a hundred garbage trucks running around in one county, it could be that they aren't comfortable enough with the tech and they say, all right, we're willing to try five of these new battery electric but we need to see them work first before we're going to be comfortable with more. And so we may start with five. I think a couple of years from now, Joe, there's going to be more comfort with the tech and there will be more of a programmatic fleet transition plan that might take a decade or it might take more, uh, more time. But the point is you sort of ref you re refresh the fleet with new technology over a period of years. You know, you said something really interesting there that I liked, you know, so often we have guests on the show that they like to say things like we work with municipalities, we work with the utility companies and your comment, it was very subtle, but you said, you know, we work for the municipality and I, it was just one of those things that I haven't heard it in so long that like it caught my attention. So, you know, I, I don't want to turn this thing into an infomercial. I really do sure. want to talk to you about you know, how the influence of the municipalities and the school boards affects the future buying decisions of kids and, and people as they grow. And, and we'll get to that next. But I, I, I really want to focus on that aspect of like, I work for the municipalities. Can you tell us kind of why that philosophy is different from some of the other companies that are out there trying to sell buses and trucks to people? Yeah, our approach is the, the way to make this this transition to electric, the way to make it happen, full stop, is to make it easy and affordable. And so we believe you need a bundle of services that make it easy and affordable. And so when we think about our bundle of services, it is truly a services contract. Yes, it's a pub public-private partnership, but we are 
effectively providing a bundle of services to a city to make their lives easier. Their fleet operators don't always have engineers who know how to design an electrified depot. They don't always have project managers who know how to work with the utility and install equipment. So we, we wrap it up into a services contract. I think, you know, the, the, there's definitely a partnership dynamic, but I, I, I also think you just have to be completely frank. We're a for-profit business. We believe there's a lot of value for the cities in, in outsourcing is the wrong word, but effectively leveraging a company like Highland, and there are others, that can take, a, take risk out of the process of transitioning in exchange for a fee. And that, the end result, uh, results in effectively lower cost to the district. I love the way you like, you're like almost apologizing, like we're a for-profit company, but it makes yeah. sense. Like, you know, you, you are making it easier to kind of enable this transition to electrification. And it's, it's so, so important. You know, there was this really great tweet that I saw and like, I know it's social media and social media is the devil. I get it. But I saw this really great tweet where this woman said she took her 10 year old son to the gas station with her and like taught him how to pump gas into his car. And the 10 year old kind of rolled his eyes at his mom and said, thanks for teaching me this antiquated thing that I will never use because I'm never going to buy a gas car. Right. And like, you know, it's kind of like, I'm going to teach my kid how to unravel a VCR tape that gets wound up in the rollers. Like they just have no concept it has nothing to do with that. And I think a big part of that is going to be, you know, having an electric school bus and getting into a school bus that doesn't stink of diesel, that your eyes aren't watering while the thing is idling and, you know, kids are getting on and off and, you know, being able to offer the benefits of electrification to those kids and have that experience, I think ultimately is, is not just an option for these municipalities. It's kind of their responsibility to not only take care of the kids and keep them from inhaling all that stuff, but also to kind of teach them that this is the kind of thing you're going to need to be driving and need to be purchasing when you get out into the world in order to keep stuff kind of livable, right? It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for communities to prepare young people for what, what I view as an inevitability, right? The, the, the products, like the equipment is so simple when you compare it to a combustion engine, it's more efficient and therefore fuel is less than half the cost. There's far fewer moving parts. And you know the fleets we've been operating, we've had vehicles on the road for a little over two years as a company, and the maintenance costs have been so unbelievably low. We conservatively assumed more stuff would go wrong, but there's really very little maintenance. And then you know, when you look at the, the, I'm not even talking about the environmental benefits and the community and health benefits, the tech is just better. And I think it's going to take years before, you know, all the communities around America fully understand that. We don't expect everyone to flip a switch and believe it overnight. But Joe, I think it is really an opportunity for community leaders to educate and, you know, prepare young people to, to sort of have some framing for what this what this technology means and where the opportunities might be. I, I love that answer. So let, let's talk a little bit, you know, again, pretending I'm a school board, right? And I and I love this because like I, I deal with my own local school board quite frequently with I got kids in school, young kids, old kids, all of them. So like I'm there and that's kind of where my head is at, right? So 
you know, obviously buying a new school bus is hideously expensive. We, they understand that they understand the financing. So, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about sort of the 30,000 foot view of, you know, you guys kind of take that responsibility off of them. But what does that mean from a practical point of view? If I'm on a school board and I'm trying to sell the parents on, you know, we're going to make this investment in electric vehicles for the kids, you know, what is the benefit to working with a company like Highland? And what does it mean when you kind of take that responsibility off of us? Sure. So school boards are often framing up the transition to electric as uh, something that has health benefits. That's usually at the cornerstone of the uh, basically the dialogue. The biggest obstacle is typically that of cost. And you, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head, you know, in your tee up here. I think the benefits of working with Highland or working with someone else like Highland, it starts with affordability. So the question around cost can be solved at the board level with, hey, what if we get a grant? And then everyone says, okay, if we get a grant, then maybe it's more affordable. But what that does is it's a very myopic view into one vehicle or two vehicles. It's not a, a holistic strategy. And then even if you get a grant, we would argue there's lots of unknown costs when you go to electrify the depot and set it up to be really reliable and successful. And so the pitch to parents that a school board would often make is Highland's willing to guarantee that we will only pay $2.50 per mile. We get the bus, includes the fuel, it includes anything that goes wrong with the vehicle, and it's performance-based. So if the vehicle is, is a lemon in two years, we're not out a couple hundred thousand dollars as a school. We've only paid $2.50 per mile driven. And so that starts to get into a dialogue of, okay, performance. Is, is that, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but like, I, I have to cut you off. Cause like, Please. You, you say this stuff, like it's, you know, and, and I say this to my guests all the time, like you deal with this every day. So like, it doesn't seem impressive to you, but like to someone who's outside of this, it's like, well, that doesn't seem right. So, so if I'm a school board, I'm paying, and you said 250 a mile, is that like a, a made up number to make the point or an example, or is that something realistic? No, no, that, that's a number that's, you know, right in the fairway where most of our contracts exist. So a school might drive a bus 10,000 miles a year and pay us $2.50 a mile. So we earn $25,000 for the year for that one bus. And wow. that, how do you, how do they report that? Does the bus do it on its own? Like the bus says, you know, Hey, Duncan, they drove me 50 miles today and, and it sends to you for billing or or is it something where somebody has to go and, you know, with like a logbook or something antiquated like that? We don't need to use logbooks. We've got, <laughs> yeah, we've got telematics that, that draw from the odometer. And uh, basically we've got our, our own layer of technology. We can manage the equipment. We can manage the equipment from the field, from our, our um, remote operating center in Massachusetts. And we can, we know what the state of charge is. We know where the vehicles are. We know how far they are from the depot. We know how hot it is or how cold it is. We know what the fuel mileage looks like. And so all the data we provide on a dashboard to the school. That's very much an operational thing, but, but, the, but the billing is simple. It's really simple. 
Wow. But, you know, and again, this is my fault because I I keep steering this to electric school buses, right? Because that's where my head's at. No problem. The more we talk, like you keep saying the vehicle and that kind of brings me to another point. Like this could be anything, right? Because it, it, it's not specific to school buses. It can be police vehicles. It can be, you know, the, the, the shuttle service or whatever it yes. is. And, you know, what about like really oddball stuff? Like if the, you know, the parks district has an electric ATV that they use around the parks to pull stuff around there, there's some kind of metric for that, whether it's by the hour or by the mile or something. And you guys are are in that business as well, or you're strictly buses and, and garbage truck kind of thing. Yeah. In theory, we could be in any of these fleets, you know, park parks and rec. Those are departments that have lots of like pickup trucks and stuff like that. Sometimes there's shuttle vans. Those are all very good candidates for electrification. But Joe, we're spending the majority of our time as a company supporting the the transition of school bus fleets, mostly because there's a lot of demand. There's a ton of demand. It's It's a category that has more interest locally from grassroots organizations, school boards, politicians, and we can make it affordable. So the product suite is, you know, at a good stage of evolution. I would argue the the refuse business, garbage trucks, will be incredibly compelling in a year or two years, but there's not quite as many tailwinds in that industry as there is in school bus today. Wow. What about, you know, so let's talk about that demand because you, I mean, I'm, I assume you have kind of your finger on the pulse of what is in demand from this municipal and, and, and even not only public sector, but private sector fleets and kind of what they're looking for in terms of vehicle and vehicle maintenance packages. Yeah. So, you know, we, we said that the, the highest demand is really there for electric school buses. Are you seeing demand in other sections grow and is, is, is one growing faster than another? Like what, what kind of kind of larger industry trends can you speak to here? Yeah, look, I think light duty platforms are in are more mature from a technology standpoint and the price point is not at such a crazy premium over the gas equivalent that there's more interest there. You know, there's plenty of companies out there that have basically a light duty electric platform that can deliver a pickup truck or a van or a shuttle a smaller shuttle bus or a box truck. And so that's definitely a higher volume category. It, it crosses lots of, you know, different industry segments and it's very viable. I, I think we're, we're at a place where there are local pockets like in Southern California, where you don't have to explain to anyone what an electric fleet means anymore, right? There's just enough awareness. There's been enough technology getting sort of trickled into the community, enough grant programs. But I would say in many of the other states, you still there's still early market education that has to happen. You have to convince people that, you know, the vehicles will work, that they will complete the duty cycle requested. There's range anxiety with drivers. It's it's about convincing them that you know, that, that range is going to be adequate. So yeah, it's about convincing I, them that they can trust the technology in the way that they've trusted the fuel that they've had before. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. So, so I, I just think you come full circle, light duty, probably leading the pack 
And then when you get into the medium and heavy duty platforms, you know, the, the industries are earlier. But in medium and heavy duty, I think, you know, we, we see school buses having the most demand today. I, I think this is all really great stuff. As a leader in energy storage technologies, Vartzilla Energy Storage and Optimization's mission is to make storage a fundamental part of a cleaner, more intelligent, and distributed energy infrastructure. We are a passionate team tackling exciting challenges in the energy industry as we transition the power grid to a 100% renewables future. Our technologies and solutions are a critical component supporting utilities, renewables developers, independent power producers, and many more energy asset owners in their decarbonization journeys. As Vertilla Energy Storage continues to grow, we are always on the lookout for future-oriented talent, talent that shares our passion for the energy transition. Want to join us as we scale up? Please visit storage.vartzilla.com forward slash careers to learn more today. I, I, I feel like I'm not the right guy to interview you just because like the questions that I have are, are so in the realm of like, well, what does this cost? How is this build? What is this? You know? And, and I know that there's a deeper, better question to be asked here. If I was a smart person and I was interviewing you, what would be like a really good question to ask you that I think most people wouldn't know about that, that your industry and your field really gives you insight into? I imagine like one of those things would be, you know, you mentioned the charging depot and the training, like what does that give us that we're not expecting, you know, because we're not part of the industry? Yeah, sure. So a couple things. I think one one of the questions that we tend to get is really around cost. If a diesel school bus is $150,000 and electric is $350,000, that's a huge premium. And people tend to jump to the conclusion that it has to be made up by federal subsidies. Whether it's a grant or a big tax credit, it's, it's basically the government is, is filling that gap so that it's affordable for the operator. And I would, I would suggest that we, we, we try to myth bust that theme. Grants are definitely a key piece of, uh, of the puzzle around creating affordability. But if you think about a 10 year life cycle of operating a diesel bus versus a 10 year life of operating an electric bus, there are a whole bunch of downstream values that people tend to discount today, but in reality, they're fairly predictable. And if you're willing to do the deep enough due diligence, you can come to a fairly clean conclusion that at least a good amount of them are going to show up. And so you asked about the depot. Let me, let me anchor a couple of these values around the depot. So one value is that an electric engine is more efficient at turning a unit of energy into a unit of propulsion. There's, there's less friction, fewer moving parts. The whole thing is a simpler design. So right. you have- There was that study that just came out that even if 100% of your electricity is generated with coal, it's still 30% more energy efficient than a, a gas or a diesel engine. So, so I, I hear where you're going with that. Exactly. The show there you that. go. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So, so, and then on top of that, you know, electricity is just cheaper. We generate it locally. It's distributed locally. We don't have all the, 
all the costs that the you know the oil and gas industry the oil industry has in particular so it you're going to save money by by charging versus liquid fuels the second piece so so let's say the savings amount to $3000 a year for 10 years that's $30,000 of fuel savings wow and people tend to ignore that so what we do what we try to do is we we basically bring that $30,000 forward and there's a cost of capital and there's some other pieces of the puzzle but we might say we're going to drop the we'll drop the price by by 20 or $25,000 just on account of fuel savings. So it's sort of like a rebate to the school district provided up front. Yeah. Do you, and then, when a school district buys a diesel bus, are they typically buying that cash? Are they financing it? Because I, I imagine that, you know, like what we saw last summer when the fuel prices go through the roof, that really impacts their budget and their ability to continue doing business on a tight budget if their fuel bill suddenly doubles. Yeah, schools are doing a combination of financing and, and paying cash, usually through municipal bond bond funds. But but I would say to your point around fuel costs, fuel costs are something that districts typically do not hedge. It's something that they have to sort of ride the commodity curve on. And in April, we were in contact with over 50 school districts that had to request emergency funding from the board just to finish the bus routes for April, May, and June because diesel prices had gone through the roof. And we know one of those school districts had to request $2 million of emergency funding. So if fuel costs, fuel costs, you know, can be dramatic, they can certainly be dramatic. There's value in lowering them and locking in a fixed price. But let me just hit on, Joe, let me hit on one other value from the depot. Yeah, of course. When you've got a depot that's electrified, you have this tight connection with the utility and you have the ability to draw power to charge your buses. You also have the ability, if you have the right equipment, to send power from your bus batteries back to the utility. And so it might seem counterintuitive. Oh, that's interesting. But we, we do it at virtually all of our sites and we do it during specific hours typically over the summer so the fleet's largely idle schools out buses are sitting in the lot and there's an abundance of power available during the day in part because of solar in certain communities in other communities there's more power available at night because of wind and so the point is if we can draw power into the vehicle batteries when there's an abundance of cheap power available on the grid, the grid's actually eager to pay to get that power back during peak hours when production is low and demand for power is high. Air conditioning loads in homes, you know. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm trying to understand what you're saying here, and I, I think I get it, but I, I just want to rephrase it so that I, so that I can be sure I get it. So please. In the summer or, or over the weekends or in the evening when these vehicles are not needed as transporters, they can act as a battery backup for the grid and actually support the grid. So we're not looking at a scenario where, you know, again, we talked earlier about the, uh, you know, the, the criticisms of people who are, are critics of EVs. One of those being, well, how are we going to, you know, put 
a load of 24 or, or 10 new electric buses onto the grid in, in an area that might be more rural or more spaced out. But you're saying that th this kind of investment actually supports the local utility grid. Exactly. You nailed it. The thing about a fleet like a school bus or a garbage truck fleet is it's only out for five hours or six hours a day, maybe eight hours a day at the most. But the vast majority of the hours during the day, it's sitting idle at the depot. And if you need two and a half hours to charge, you can pick and choose those times. You can pick and choose times when it's most convenient for the utility operator. They have excess power available. There's zero strain on the grid operator. But, but I think the, big, the bigger opportunity is also to become truly an asset for your local transmission system, helping that grid operator better utilize its infrastructure, lower costs to ratepayers, and meet peak demand. So we, we do this and we earn cash. We earn money every month that we do it. And, you know, in New England, that if the equipment is designed in the right way, that can be $5,000 or $10,000 per year. So again, this is a downstream value that is often hard to bet on. But if you've got someone willing to bet on it and actually just reduce the cost of getting this equipment in the first place, that's a, that's a very good sort of, that's a very good reason to enter into a public-private partnership. Right. So you guys are rolling the dice. Highland yeah. is rolling the dice and saying, okay, we're going to predict that this is going to pay back X amount. Yes. And we're going to add that. We're going to work that, that credit to lower your price per mile. And we're going to bet our money that this thing is going to run for 10 years and do this and do that. And you guys are just going to be charged this flat amount of mile. We can even accurately tell you based on what the route is, we can give you a really good estimate of what those miles are going to be. So you can build your budget and build out your budget and present to your grants or your stakeholders a pretty well fixed amount. We're going to all have contracts. Everybody's going to be happy and it's going to support the local energy grid, improve the student's health and everybody wins. That's exactly right. So why don't, why isn't every school district in America doing this? Well, a couple things. We're asking schools to buy transportation in a different way. So there's a, a component of just changing what has been done for decades and decades and decades. Yeah, people don't like that. People don't like change. <laughs> and, then, and then I think the second thing would be there is still some real hesitancy around the technology. It's great if we're willing to sign a performance-based contract and the fact they don't have to pay us if it doesn't work, everyone loves that. But if it doesn't work, they're still stuck with the problem of getting kids to school. And so the question is, do they have to maintain a spare bus fleet? So that's a real concern that people have. That's a common pushback that we get. And you know, I think there's more and more comfort every month that these electric vehicles are actually very reliable. And there's some myth busting that has to happen across the industry. But I think, you know, give us another 12 to 18 months as an industry. And I don't expect that will be as big of an obstacle. Now, but how do you respond to that? If I said to you, 
hey, you know, I'm a garbage truck fleet manager and I got to trust these things. And I understand I only pay if it works. But what if Tuesday morning rolls around and these things don't work? They're in the middle of a software update or something and they get bricked. Well, you know, the garbage still has to be picked up. Yeah. Is the answer to that, you know, you know, hey, tough cookies. Sometimes the diesel fleets break down, too. Or is there a more nuanced response to that? Yeah, yeah, you're right. There's a little bit more of a nuanced response, which is if you're running a 50 vehicle garbage truck fleet, you're going to have five or 10 spare buses today because diesel buses break down. And so the reliability of a diesel bus, they, there, there are plenty of metrics and it, it, it's different everywhere because some people have newer fleets that are more reliable and some people have old, older fleets that are less reliable. But the point is you have some spares in your fleet already today. All we need to do is prove that our vehicles will be more reliable than their average diesel. So there's still the chance that a bus will be down, a truck will be down on a Tuesday morning and the trash needs to get picked up. But as long as that rate of reliability is bad or better than, you know, the bogey, which is the diesel reliability, right, right. then there's usually comfort. Do you, have you ever had somebody, have, have you ever responded to that objection with, okay, why don't we turn your, uh, you know, why don't you, you have however many buses you have and you have two spares, let's make your two spares, the electric ones and use that as a start. And then you'll see how that works over 12 months or whatever, and then electrify the whole fleet. Or is it, or do municipalities kind of just go, you know, both feet, take the plunge or do nothing? Yeah. Good question. I've never used that response. I think when people are looking at getting new vehicles, whether it's electric or diesel, they're getting new vehicles so they can have the most reliable newest vehicles on the road. And they're using the oldest vehicles as their spares. So, but it's a good question. I think it's something we should take a deeper dive into. I, I think the question around reliability is typically not a reason for folks to walk away, at least if they're talking about a small initial implementation. The last question I have, and, and we can probably edit this out, which almost always means I won't edit it out, but you know, this seems to be a, a fairly politically charged topic of electrification. And it's kind of unexpected, right? Because like who ultimately cares what fuel you put in your vehicle as long as it works and it's cost effective and all that. And I was really surprised. I was at the ACT Expo in Long Beach earlier this year. And I was talking to a, another company, Green Power, and it, it, not to plug Green Power, but it's just who I was talking to. Yeah. And they made the comment that they were actually really, really strong in the deep South and in Texas, where they had rural routes that had kind of longer ranges, because that's where they were showing the greatest cost savings to these school districts. I know you're in New England. New England is, is you know, pretty, uh, I, I would say pretty progressive in most states, right? You know, Vermont, Massachusetts, things like that. They're, they're high population centers that people kind of get electrification. Are you finding a way to communicate that to, you know, what, what we would typically call the red states or are, do they pretty much get it already? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I think that with electrification, there's less of a politically charged dynamic. So the, re the couple reasons why. What we've seen on the ground is that you fuel your vehicles locally. 
you're creating your power in your state, however you're creating your power. So one of the ironies is the coal lobby is supportive of electrification. Because right, why wouldn't they need more coal? That's right, (laughs) more coal. But I never thought of that. What a great. I had no yeah. concept of that, but you're absolutely yeah. right. Why wouldn't they? If you yeah, can exactly. run your cars on coal, why and, wouldn't the coal companies love that? And most states are importing <laughs> importing liquid fuels versus electricity is made locally. So there's a story around local jobs, local resilience, and I think that plays everywhere. You know, the second thing I'd say is school boards very very. Uh, there's one common thread. And that's that budgets matter to everyone. I don't care if it's a red state or a blue state or a green state, right? It's budgets matter everywhere. Even some of the wealthiest communities around the country have budget issues and they're cutting programming because, you know, because the cost of serving and and keeping a school system strong and, and sort of, you know, sort of richly like empowered with the right people and the right teachers is getting more and more expensive. So if you can find some way to frame up savings, there's there's a lot of receptivity. Energy efficiency companies, ESCOs, have been replacing HVAC systems and chillers and equipment on schools for years. And it's a simple equation for a CFO. It's not about technology. It's about a cost. And then, Joe, I think the last thing I would say is we, there, there's one other issue, which is that bus drivers are in shortage everywhere, yes. absolutely everywhere. And bus drivers like the electric platform better across the board, everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's more comfortable. Quiet, it's quieter. It doesn't stink. Yeah. The, the braking is smooth and easier. The acceleration is more fun. You know, I, I'll never forget. Nicola had a marketing campaign with uh, Heavy D or the Diesel Brothers. I can't remember. And this is this is uh, a guy who has built his brand around diesel trucks. And he said, I'm going electric. Why? Because there's more torque. There's better braking. The horsepower is better. I can go zero to 60 in 3.8 seconds. It's just an upgrade across the board. So there's a, a set of performance dynamics that I think ultimately you know, just become more important than, you know, someone's political agenda. The tech is truly an upgrade. And so it's I think truly an upgrade, right? It's like yeah. the iPhone is just better than your flip phone guys. I'm sorry. Or, or the Android, whatever I have them both. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. But I, I think we've seen just as much demand in red States as blue States. We have a tremendous amount of interest in Texas. You know, there's pockets of Texas where that they're not thinking red or blue. They're just thinking they're, they're looking at the cost. I love it. Yeah, so that's right. Listen, Duncan, you know, we're, we're getting to the end of our time contract here and, and, you know, we always, we try to record 40 minutes and get it down to 20 good ones, but I, I don't know what we would cut here. Cause I think it's all good. So this might just be the extra long episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I just want to say thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for taking the time here. And I know, I think we're also trying to get you out to Austin for one of our live events as well, which I think great. You know, how can the people who are listening here, how can they follow up with you? How can they learn more about Highland? How can they learn more about how you are? And ultimately, if somebody, you know, somebody listening to this is on a school board or or a municipal board somewhere, how can they present what you're doing to the board in a way that, you know, really puts you in the best possible light? Yeah. Well, well, yeah, thanks. Well, Joe, listen, first of all, 
thanks for having me on. Huge fan of all the work you're doing. So thank you for continuing. I, I am a superstar. Work. I think that yeah, that's fair to say. You're definitely. <laughs> awesome. uh, I think we are. Look, anyone who wants to get in touch, we're 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 in the in the world of doing a ton of stakeholder engagement across the country, and we're not we we're not we're not selling every second of our day. We're doing work with politicians and local governments and work with stakeholder advocacy groups. So if anyone wants support, we've got a ton of educational collateral. We've got financial models. We've got lots of tools to help get to some of these questions around affordability, reliability. Yeah. And um, that's just highlandfleets.com if somebody was going to look for those. Yeah. Inf- well, yeah, our, there's some stuff on our website. You can also email us info at Highland Fleets. And if anyone wants to get in touch with me directly, I'm more than happy to, to field inquiries. It's just Duncan at highlandfleets.com. And, you know, I would say uh, we're, we have people in 17 states and a few provinces in Canada. And so we're oh, going to cool. be- You're international. We are. That's right. <laughs> so we're, you know, we're trying to make sure we're uh, present at, you know, all the big sort of events that happen state by state by state, because this is a market that's local and you have to sort of get engaged and support the local markets in the specific ways that matter locally. So yeah, just look out for our team and, and feel free to reach out if, if anyone wants to engage. And the last thing I'd just say is if, if, you, if you're part of a school board or speaking to school board members, I think the key themes would be myth bust that this is not affordable because it is. You just have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and take a look at it. Yeah. Well, they don't even have to do that. They just have to let you take all the financial risk. Yeah, they can. They can certainly choose to do that. And we're happy to, but if they're earlier on their journey, they might want to look at all the alternatives. Exactly right. All right, Duncan, thanks so much for being here. And uh, I think that's it. I think that's it for the show. So thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Walk, 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 walk,